Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Good morning. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, MIP is COVID free. Free meaning you don't need a subscription to MIP every day now for a limited time. While we endure this pandemic, we want to make it available to everyone. So wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, MIP is COVID free and available to you and everyone without a subscription. Ladies and gentlemen, as we all know, and we've talked about it before, there's a great deal of activity when it comes to women's rights to abortion. It seems Republicans are taking advantage of this pandemic to once again threaten those rights. I want to talk about that today with someone who's eminently qualified to talk with us about it. She's one of the world's leading authorities on the legal history of the American abortion debate. Her dozens of law review articles have appeared in leading law reviews and her work on abortion has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Atlanta, New York Daily News, and BBC History Magazine, just to name a few. And she often appears on media to share her expertise. We're happy to have her here with us now. She has written three books. Her most recent, Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Way to the Present. We're going to talk about that. She is also a professor at Florida State University. Happy to have with us today, Professor Mary Ziegler. Professor, how are you today and how are you and yours faring in this crisis? 
Um, I'm okay. And, you know, I think we are all pretty lucky, all things considered. I mean, we're safe and we're not at any personal risk, which I think of still have our jobs, which is really all you can ask, I think, at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you, you Are you in Florida now? I am, yeah. I'm on, I'm in the panhandle, which is sometimes a bad place to be for other reasons, but a good place, sorry, my cat is in the background, a good place to be otherwise, uh, it, just because it's pretty sparsely populated. So social distancing is easy here. Well, listen, on the cat, that's fine. This is Zoom, so cats do everything happens on zoom <laughs> okay <laughs> actually actually i'm kind of i'm kind of hoping uh uh that the uh the baby photo bombs us i'd love to see the baby but anyway uh, <laughs> uh um so well glad you're well you are in in that in a state after all where you all have shall we say a, a very special governor so. <laughs> yeah whenever anything he says is sort of reasonable we all are amazed and temporarily grateful so yeah yeah um so it would it would seem that some of these Republicans in some of these states are taking advantage of the pandemic to attack Roe, correct? Right, yeah. I think it's part of a longer standing strategy. So one thing, obviously, that listeners might notice is that the states that are trying to ban abortion during the COVID-19 pandemic are the same states that tried to ban abortion before the COVID-19 pandemic, which isn't a surprise. And even the arguments you see are related. So one thing that's striking is none of these states are saying there is no right to choose abortion, right? They're being very indirect and stealthy about it. So instead, they're focusing on these arguments that abortion uses up personal protective equipment or hospital beds. And that's been part of a kind of longer standing strategy to, um, I think, kind of distract attention from the main issues and focus on claims about what abortion in America is really like which anti-abortion activists believe would be a more effective way to erode abortion rights than actually asking for what they want, which is, you know, a right to life and an outright abortion ban. How many states, I know about Texas, but how many other states are we talking about now that have tried to restrict? I think we're up to eight, I think. Um, I'd, I'd have to check. And I know there are several others that are considering the bans. Um, a lot of them, of course, have been blocked by federal courts. One of them in Arkansas has been allowed to go forward. So this is also an issue that I think quite likely could end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, if, you know, you have an outright ban, that's at least arguably probably should be unconstitutional. And so that's the kind of question that the, the U.S. Supreme Court might be asked to weigh in on. Before we go to the U.S. Supreme Court, though, it, it just, I mean, we know how, how opposed they are to a woman's right to choose. Mm -hmm. But I'm just really trying to figure out, in a crisis such as this, how did, it was almost overnight immediately. Like, it was almost as if they were waiting on corona to do this this time. And I'm like, what? how does that become the first thing that comes into your mind when you are supposed to be battling a crisis like this? Well, I think one of the things that's probably worth remembering is that people who are in the organized anti-abortion movement, and I don't mean just people who are opposed to abortion, because that's a broader category, but people in the organized anti-abortion movement, whether they're in state government or they're just in social movement organizations, this is their number one issue, right? There, Many of those people, I think, really didn't want to vote for Donald Trump, but to them, this was the overriding political issue, not only of the 2020 election or the 2016 election, but kind of of modern American history. So of course, anytime there's any opportunity to advance that agenda, they're going to take it and as quickly as possible, because 
if you are opposed to abortion to that degree, that's the most important issue, even during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, it also seems to me, once again, shows the hypocrisy in what is called pro-life. Um, because, I mean, that pro, there seems to be, a, a, once again, a greater priority. Because I think we can also find, too, that many of the states where they're talking about restrictions are also some of the ones that, are, that didn't want to lock down, and also some of the ones that are talking about ending lockdowns early. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is, 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 is an unborn child's life, so to speak, as they would call it, more important than the lives of the rest of us walking around living and breathing in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, I think that's the question. Yeah, and I think one of the things it shows is that um, the, for the, there are people in the anti-abortion movement who define the right to life more broadly and would be upset, for example, by ending lockdowns for that reason. But the organized movement and the GOP, which I think have been in lots of this, have arrived at a kind of single issue definition because for them, abortion is a political issue, right? And so if it's a political issue, you need to vote as a block and you need to suppress any disagreement on other issues, whether that's, right. for example, the death penalty, right? You might see some Catholics opposed to abortion also being opposed to the death penalty, but you don't wanna bring that up if it's gonna create disunity, which leaves you with this argument that pro-life equals anti-abortion and nothing more. And that does of course open, you know, not only the anti-abortion movement, but also the GOP to these charges of hypocrisy at a moment like this. Yeah, what are the, what are the risks to women uh, and their health if it's restricted in this way, in any way. I mean, some are saying, well, let's just make it an elective surgery and then we can de deprioritize it. In this type of pandemic, how great a risk is that to women's health? It's a considerable risk. I think um, probably one of the things you would see that we've already seen in Texas is that women would travel outside of the state to get abortions. And obviously, as we know, if lockdowns are the best idea from a public health standpoint, traveling out of state with all that would entail is not particularly safe for women. Um, and that's especially true for women who don't have a lot of resources, who are not going to necessarily be able to take the right public health precautions while traveling out of state. Um, there are options that would be more valid or more safe, like telemedicine abortion, that many of the states that have these COVID-19 bans functionally ban telemedicine abortion and make you go to a clinic. Um, that means that then some women might be relying on ordering medication abortion from the internet and trying to kind of do it on their own, which, you know, is less unsafe than it would have been several decades ago, but it's still unsafe because then, of course, if women have complications because they're not being supervised by a physician, they have to go to a doctor's office and going to a doctor's office during the pandemic raises its own health risks. So, Generally speaking, it's less safe for women to get abortion care in the way that they have to under one of these bans. Um, I think that's especially true for women whose pregnancies are sort of in a middle belt. So some states have allowed medication abortions very early in pregnancy to go forward, but they haven't allowed, and they've allowed relatively late abortions to go forward because of course many states ban abortion at 20 weeks anyway. But there are women kind of in between who may need abortions either for health reasons or personal reasons who are the most left out in the cold and probably face the greatest. Yeah, of course, you mentioned the Supreme Court, but let, let's do a little bit of history. Mm -hmm. Haven't the latest restrictions we've been seeing, let's say over the past 15 to 20 years, 
mm-hmm. the individual states, the little things that they've been doing. Well, they aren't little, but it's like um, death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, um, has having all those things really been in violation of Roe when we really think about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's, I think, really striking about recent history is the extent to which Roe, as it was originally written, has already been kind of eliminated. The Supreme Court has changed the constitutional framework, so we're no longer working with the Roe rights framework we had originally. And the political discourse has changed, too. So we're fighting about things like, you know, does abortion use personal protective equipment? not the kind of big underlying constitutional issue, which is whether there's a right to choose in the first place. So this death of a thousand cuts has changed really lots of things about how abortion works in America from how the courts analyzed it um, to what we disagree about, right? I mean, if you talk to people who are opposed to abortion, they're no longer just disagreeing about the big ticket issues, like what rights are at stake in this domain. They're also disagreeing about basic facts and science, right? Like whether abortion causes breast cancer, or whether you can reverse a medication abortion, these things that should be kind of basic facts we all agree on no longer are. So you, you, you say that it's really out away from the Roe framework? In so a way. More about that. What, what do you mean by that? So um, in the last time, the, and this is in the book too, the last time the court was seriously thinking about overturning Roe, at the last minute, they actually saved Roe and instead created a new rule of law rather than Roe's rule of law. Under Roe, you couldn't really restrict abortion at all in the first trimester of pregnancy, but the Supreme Court changed that in 1992. And now the rule is that the states can restrict abortion so long as it's not an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. Um, the undue burden test forced states and really reproductive rights advocates to focus a lot on what the effects of these abortion restrictions were on women's lives. And they invited, I think, anti-abortion activists to start making these arguments that abortion itself had negative effects on women's lives, which is an argument that you really see flourishing now. Um, So when we're talking about overruling Roe, now we're talking about overruling Roe and Casey, this 1992 decision, which really transformed how the law thinks about reproductive rights. So can we ever, get back to the original framework of Roe, or we or we just lost altogether on that? I mean, you can never say never. I think um, in some ways, uh, if the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe and Casey now, um, that would of course be devastating, but it would also create a kind of bank, blank slate going forward. Because of course, as most listeners can imagine, if the court were to overturn Roe, that wouldn't be the kind of the end of the story from the standpoint, even of the courts, progressives would go back to court, would try to seek new justices, try to seek new arguments. So it's not hard to imagine that at some point in the future, probably the distant future, we would get back to the Roe framework. The other uh, tool that I've seen progressives exploring is like a federal statute to protect abortion rights and to restore something like the original Roe framework or even something better than the original Roe framework. The Roe framework had its own flaws. Um, So in a scenario where, for example, the Democrats were to control both houses of Congress and the White House after 2020, there will definitely be, and I've been part of discussions about what a federal statute protecting abortion rights would look like. Um, That in the short term is probably the most likely way that you see a return to something like the Roe framework. Um, In the Supreme Court now, we're obviously much more talking about 
um, further eroding reproductive rights, not expanding them? Um, so in that case, because people always speak in the context of the current Supreme Court, mm -hmm. just overturning it all together. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like what you're saying, they don't quite have to do it emphatically that way right. to, to deal a fatal blow. Absolutely. And I think in many ways, they're less likely to. Because if for the court were, were to say, for example, we hereby overturn Roe v. Wade, a lot of progressive voters, and even really, frankly, not particularly progressive voters, like moderate voters, and even some Republicans would be really angry about that. Um, and there would probably be a backlash. By contrast, if the court has these sort of very incremental, fairly technical death of a thousand cuts rulings, a lot of Americans would struggle to understand what was even really going on, yeah, right? If yeah. they weren't peers, and they wouldn't therefore be that angry about it because they wouldn't have time to even understand what the court was trying to do. So I think there's every reason to think that the court would probably go that more incremental stealth route because they don't want to damage the court's reputation or kind of institutional legitimacy. And we, we know that this is especially true of um, Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts, who often speak about the court's reputation and institutional legitimacy. So what that means, I think, for progressives is that you have to actually be willing to kind of get down into the weeds with these abortion decisions to see what's going on, what effect it's actually going to have on women, and what effect it's going to have on you as an individual, and then do something, even if it isn't as clear as you would like it to be, which it's not likely to be. Yeah. Um, you, uh, the day we're recording this, ladies and gentlemen, I was reading uh, a thread uh, that our guest had, had published on her Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of talk, go through a bit of that history. Mm -hmm. um, and you acknowledge that um, uh, pro-choice advocates, progressives, activists, what have you, um, at, at different points in history, probably were a little too complacent mm -hmm. in terms of, of defending this right to choose. Can, can you expound on that and, and what, you, what yeah. your thought was about? I think there, there's sort of two ways that Roe created complacency. Probably the most obvious was that after Roe came down, progressives really felt that they had won, right? And I think this is a good lesson kind of in reverse going forward, that if Roe is gone, that doesn't mean anti-choice people won either. It's very temporary. But I think that at the time Roe came down, progressives were a little bit asleep at the switch for the better part of a decade, and that helped to give us the Hyde Amendment, which is, of course, probably the most single most effective piece of anti-abortion legislation out there, and probably the most relevant for poor and non-white women who really struggle to get abortions under the Hyde Amendment. Um, the other way I think that it created complacency at times was that defending Roe, right, preserving this kind of right to choose, became such a priority for larger pro-choice organizations like your Planned Parenthoods or NARALs of the world that at times they sort of marginalized more progressive voices, especially women of color, who wanted to kind of a more expansive reproductive justice agenda, right? They thought while abortion rights are important, they should be understood as part of the framework that includes things like, you know, access to resources to raise the children you want to have or freedom from sterilization abuse. And logically, the, the pro-choice movement would have been the go-to authority for that. These were wealthy, connected organizations. But at times, those organizations didn't want to get into a broader reproductive justice framework because they were worried that it would be too politically costly when it came to the fate of Roe. So Roe was such a priority for so many progressive and especially Democratic Party organizations for so long that 
you did sometimes see the concerns of more marginalized populations getting pushed to the side. Wow. Um, yeah, well, that, that's, that's definitely uh, uh, true because there are other aspects of the, of the um, reproductive justice movement. But would you also, and, and maybe this just doesn't simply apply to progressives or Democrats, for example, I mean, as a man, Mm -hmm. um, as a male, I understood in past elections the importance of the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and how your vote would determine who would be put on the Supreme Court and how that would impact Roe. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I would vote on that basis. 53% um, of, of women, or at least white women, voted for a man whom we all knew would appoint Supreme Court justices to set us back. So what, what does that say about um, the majority of women in America when it comes to this issue? I mean, that you, I, it's, it's still, I mean, we know that every woman of, in America is not pro-choice. Mm -hmm. We know that there are some pro-life, but it's still hard for me to fathom how as many as 53% would not see the risk to themselves unless they somehow can remember or have some knowledge of the past before Roe, when if you were wealthy and had resources, you can go somewhere else in the world and get it done. It, it, is that what's going on? Yeah, I think it's a combination of some Americans, um, some American women, and probably particularly white women, although there are non-white women who are opposed to abortion too, opposing abortion. There and then some women just frankly not caring about this issue, maybe because they're past reproductive age or they have lots of resources so they can have kids even if they don't want to have them. Um, and then I think people who very much to your point don't worry about themselves, right? It may be the case that you live in a blue state and you know that if Roe were overturned, you'll still be able to get abortion or that you have lots of resources so that you or your daughter could still get an abortion. So I think it's very much um, uh, sort of a function of you feeling that you won't personally be affected and not particularly caring if other people are affected, which is something that I think we unfortunately see rather often playing out during the pandemic. Yeah. You mentioned too, as, as we talked about um, um, court rulings and how sometimes they can be too complicated for people to really grasp or understand. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in, in your book, you, you touch on this. Right now, I think overall, people may not have a real grasp about what is going on. And, and just like so many other things, I mean, we look at voting rights, states determine them. I mean, it's not one national standard. Um, the abortion debate and what these states are doing with regards to abortion has kind of gone that way. So in, in general, do people have a real understanding of, do you think of what's really going on overall with what's happening with abortion? I, no, because I think most people still think that Roe is the law. Um, part of the confusion is that when we say Roe, we mean lots of different things. So some people use Roe synonymously with the Supreme Court decision. Some people mean a woman's right to choose. Some people mean legal abortion. Like Roe, the actual guiding legal principle is gone, right? Um, I don't think most people know that. And as a result, that means that everything that's come more recently which is actually what's going to determine the fate of abortion rights, whether we're talking about in the political arena or in court, 
a lot of that is in stuff that most people know about. And I mean, that's why I wrote the book, because I think this is obviously an incredibly important issue. And I think the future of the issue really doesn't depend on lawyers and judges. It depends on ordinary people and grassroots activists, but a lot of them don't have the basic information that it would take to be effective, right? I mean, if you want to do something to defend these rights, you have to understand the nature of the threat. You have to understand where it came from and its history, or you'll be kind of ultimately, I think, ineffective. Um, so, yeah, I mean, can, can people really fight it if they don't really have all the information about what's going on? And can groups that have been leading the fight for this long, can they be successful at organizing people if everyone's not fully informed about the changes that are taking place? I mean, because you're the first person I've heard say um, that Roe as it was originally, as it originally exists is, is pretty much gone. Um, that's something that pro-choice advocates may not want to say right. out loud. You know what I mean? Because it, it, yeah. because it's like, well, that confuses people. You can't really, because we've, we've been mobilizing for the past 40 years around Roe. Let's right. save Roe. Let's save Roe. Um, you know, that's a tough sell for people to, to really grasp that. That makes it even more complicated. It's true, but it, <laughs> what you're saying is true, but it makes it even more complicated. Right. I think that that's one of the tensions that you pointed out is that um, the history that you want to use to organize people is one thing. But I think probably one of the things that I, I saw in studying the history is that people who are progressive didn't understand what anti-abortion people were doing. They didn't understand why they were doing it. They didn't understand how they were doing it. They didn't understand where the money was coming from. They didn't understand any of that. And so it was sort of like going into a boxing ring blindfolded, right? If you don't know what your opponent is doing or why, you know, even if your organizing strategies in theory are really great, you're going to be a lot less effective. And so um, the kind of history that you'd want to use in organizing is great for some things, but bad if you want to understand why the anti-abortion movement is making the moves it's making, whether that's, you know, in national politics or in the Supreme Court. Yeah, and, and that's important. Uh, you know, again, I think, I'll be very honest with you. You know, I, I look at how many of us look at anti-abortion activists over the years as just crazy people. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just like, oh my, this is so outrageous. I mean, we ought to learn from that. Because, you know, in 2016, we looked at somebody and said, oh, this is just somebody crazy. He'll never be the president. And you look what we have. Same thing with anti-abortion activists. Oh, they're outrageous. They're crazy. They're violent. This isn't going to get anywhere. And now they have, you know, they were able to get the foothold they got to influence things. Um, I guess, you know, we, we would agree that what they were able to do was, was able to influence oh, yeah. the discourse uh, to, to our side's detriment. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the anti-abortion movement has managed to more or less capture a major political party, get a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, influence policy in most states, get things before. I mean, they're some of them are absolutely, there's just no other way to put it. There are some anti-abortion activists who are just crazy, who are just yeah. you know psychotic people who kill doctors. But there are other people who are, I think, really masterful strategists. And those are often the people driving what you see unfolding in state legislatures. And they're, they're playing chess, not checkers. They're thinking about this several moves ahead. And I think if you're progressive, it makes sense to understand what they're doing. Because if you want to do something about it, you have to, you know, I, I say this as a law professor to my students all the time, you can't win an argument by fighting with a straw man, right? You have to get 
the kind of best, richest version of your opponent's argument and then show why it's wrong. And yeah. you have to understand your opponent's strategy in order to be able to defeat it. And I think it's it's been true, I think, for a lot of progressives for a long time that um, because they feel so strongly about abortion rights that they have been kind of dismissive of what anti-abortion people have done. And that's opened the door for a lot of what you see. I mean, with from Donald Trump in the White House to Brett Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court to all the COVID-19 abortion bans you see unfolding in the states. Um, aside from the, the COVID-19 bans that are obviously gonna be you know, litigated, um, are there other cases in the pipeline today mm-hmm. that are um, you know, moving their way through that are a further threat to Roe um, and, and, you know, whatever case it left us, are, are there cases like that that we need to be mindful of? Yeah. So, um, it, there was a kind of very positive development in 2016, ironically, not a lot of good stuff happened in 2016. Um, the court, uh, in a case called Whole Women's Health took the rule that Casey had created and made it much more protective of abortion rights. And the court did that by saying, if a law that restricts abortion is pointless, so in other words, it doesn't benefit anyone, it's probably unconstitutional, even if it doesn't really restrict access to abortion that much. So if legislators just come up with bogus health laws, for example, that's gonna be a problem constitutionally, even if those laws don't affect women in obvious ways. Um, Pretty much the exact same facts are before the US Supreme Court right now in a case called June Medical Services versus Russo. So Texas had passed a law saying uh, abortion providers have to have admitting privileges at a hospital close to their clinics. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's unconstitutional in 2016. Fast forward to 2020, and now the Supreme Court is is asking whether Louisiana can do the same thing. So as you can imagine, that will have implications for not just women in Louisiana, not just whether other states are going to pass this abortion restriction, but for whether the Supreme Court takes its precedent seriously altogether, because it would be directly contradicting something the court said four years ago. And if they're willing to do that, who's to say they're not willing to get rid of Roe or Casey too? So that's a huge abortion decision, and we should expect to find out about that by June of this year. Um, the court already heard oral argument in it, so they're probably writing it right now. Um, go ahead, but there are other cases in the pipeline too. That's just the big the biggie. So if, you're, if you pay attention to nothing else other than the COVID-19 bans, I'd pay attention to that. So I'm going to use, I've, I've never been a law student, mm-hmm. but I'm going to use use a big word that your profession uses because I've, I've learned it's been used over time. Uh, as you mentioned that last case, stare decisis. Mm-hmm. So that would probably be um, the quickest turnover of stare decisis between 2016 and 2020. What I mean, has there ever been a Supreme Court case that has been flipped within four years? There probably, not many. I mean, I I can't say, I don't know, you know, I can't come up with all of them, but yeah, it's rare. Um, And obviously too, on an issue that isn't, you know, like a technicality, on a big issue that hopefully the court was giving a full airing and was taking really seriously, then no, I don't think that would be that. Yeah. Um, is there anything left from Roe that is actually still useful? Oh yeah, I mean, I think um, there the idea that you women are ultimately the ones who decide is still left. Casey never changed that. And Whole Woman's Health, the 2016 decision, 
made it such that courts are actually going to take a hard look at whether state legislators are full of it when they claim to be either defending life or protecting women. So instead of just state legislators getting to pretty much do whatever they want, they actually have to go in front of the judge and make the case that this law has some kind of point. Um, that's valuable. Um, and it means that in states that are very red that otherwise would likely ban abortion outright, you're not going to see that. That's probably the single biggest value of what's left is that you know, when Alabama banned abortion, that wasn't going to fly, right? Courts in Alabama said, no, you can't do that under Casey and Roe. Whether the ban was at you know, six weeks or 15 weeks. Um, and there are other abortion restrictions, of course, that the court has struck down too, including the one that's currently before the Supreme Court. So there still is a right to abortion in America, even after Casey. It's just not the kind of broad right we think of when we talk about Roe. And so when people are talking about saving Roe, they're not wrong because there is still a right to choose abortion. It's just been scaled back a little bit. Um, so the death of a thousand cuts began earlier, but the Supreme Court ref refused, I think, to undo abortion rights multiple times. And so we still have them, just not the ones that were as robust as the ones that we had in 1973. Yeah, yeah. Her new book, uh, Abortion and the Law in America, uh, available uh, everywhere. The book is out now, right? Uh, okay, so we encourage people to check it out and uh, obviously to be more enlightened about where things stand and the more enlightened we are, the more informed we are, the better we can uh, resist and fight uh, to make sure that, that all of these rights don't go away. Uh, I'll admit though, it's a little, things are a little, a little scary, you know, and uh, folks, that's why we got to vote, honestly, that's why mm -hmm. we vote. And uh, obviously too, as you mentioned, um, this, it, the, the litigation of a woman's right to choose is not something that's going to end tomorrow, no matter what. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, students that you're educating and, and other students and attorneys will be up on this and want to engage. Oh, and, yeah. And know, even, we, even before the U.S. Supreme Court's back in play, there's going to be a fight about this in every state in the union, yeah. both state legislatures and in state Supreme Courts, even if Roe is gone. Yeah, and so yeah. there's this is in no way, I mean, whatever happens to Roe, this thing is going to continue indefinitely. And people who feel strongly about that issue, this issue are still going to have a role to play. Yeah, yeah. And right. And, and we'll need people active on that front, including those of you who are listening. Uh, let me do this since I uh, shouted out the, uh, the, the Twitter thread. Uh, and you all can follow uh, Professor Ziegler at M Ziegler, uh, no, I'm sorry, at Mary underscore Ziegler, FSU, right? Mm -hmm. That's right, I got Mary underscore Ziegler at FSU. I'm sorry, at Mary underscore Ziegler, FSU. At Mary underscore Ziegler, FSU. Follow her and hear and see some of her legal perspective and legal expertise. I want to thank you, Professor Ziegler, for joining us. Best of uh, continued health to you and your family. And best of luck down there with your governor. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, same to you. I hope you stay safe. All right, you too. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.